0: A lot of people have requested scary stories from Japan. So what I did was team up with my friend, Jay Nightmares, who translates scary stories from Japanese into English to bring you some scary, and allegedly true, Japanese horror stories. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends. It's good to see you made it back for another episode. Joining me today, telling some of these scary stories is my good friend, Jay Nightmare. If you enjoy his voice, be sure to subscribe to his channel The link will be in the description down below. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, whether it be from a foreign country or the United States, please be sure to send in your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. Now, let's get into these creepy and literally true scary stories from Japan. I heard this story on a Japanese game show. The guest was asked what the scariest experience was that they had ever been through. This was his story. I was walking home from a hard day of work. I stopped by a convenience store near my building and picked up a few beers and some snacks. During this time, I noticed a strange man looking through the aisles. He would stare at people a bit too long and always pick up an item, hold it for a few moments and put it back. He never even looked at what he was holding. I hurried to the register and paid for my things so I could hurry home. Relieved, I made my way to my apartment building. As I got in the building and reached the elevator, I heard the door to the complex open again. To my surprise, that same man was walking my way. When the ding of the elevator rang out, I made my way in and he followed. I kept my head down and tried to keep my cool. I was sweating and trying to calm down. Um, what What floor are you looking for, sir? He said nothing, and just kept standing there. I hit my floor number and kept to myself. The whole ride was nerve-wracking. I didn't want to look his way and did my best to politely keep to myself. When the door opened, I gave a polite bow and made my way to the door, just past the elevator. When I opened the door, I caught a glimpse of him leaning against the elevator wall looking my way. Days later, I heard a knock on my door. Looking through the peephole, I saw a uniformed officer outside. I opened the door, went through the formalities, and he asked if I had heard or seen anything odd recently. The man came to mine. I started to sweat and felt a fear in my soul. I lied and said no, nothing at all. The officer asked if I was sure, and I apologized for keeping him. Two days later, I saw in the news that a woman in my building had been murdered in a gruesome way. I felt bad for her, and when the killer's face was shown, I froze up tears in my eyes, and the blood in my body turned to ice. It was the police officer. The killer had been the man in the elevator with me. He impersonated an officer to question me and make sure nobody had seen him. If I had said I had saw him that day, he probably would have killed me too.
1: My parents are in a cult. I grew up in it. It was all I knew for the longest time. As far as I can remember, there were 10 executives, which basically meant leaders. And the cult had approximately 200 followers. I remember vaguely before the cult, my father, he worked for a trading company somewhere. Unfortunately, before long, he became an executive and we all left our family home and moved into the cult, dormitory-style housing. I was in the first year of elementary. My brother was also at the same school, but he was a couple of years older than me. Everything changed for my family that autumn. We were the only kids at school who were attending classes three days a week. and It made us kind of outcasts with our classmates. I remember that teachers were annoyed at this arrangement and wanted us to go to school more. My parents were called in to speak to the teachers at one point and that really sticks out in my mind because after that, there was no more school. From that day forward, after breakfast, we would have religious studies, which basically meant reciting cult doctrine or participating in ritualistic ceremonies. Then after, we had the luxury of working in the compound. This meant that we would either work indoors or in the many acres behind the compound, which they owned. Outdoor work was field work, you know? Planting seeds, maintaining crops, feeding animals, that kind of thing. I don't like to cast my mind back to those days so often, but I remember that the chickens were scary and the goats were cute. Mum and Dad lived in this sort of rhythmic happiness together. They barely noticed or cared about my brother and I, or what we got up to. He was a kind brother, he taught me maths and how to read all in secret in bed at night time by torchlight. I remember one night about roughly a year into our life in the compound. My brother was teaching me as usual in the silence of the night. He turned to me and whispered, "This place is no good. Mum and dad aren't mum and dad anymore. We shouldn't be here. I want you to come with me." I understood that at the time to mean Mum and dad have gone to the other side. Like a game or a film, they joined the wrong team. A bad team. There was no turning back. There was to be no more childhood if I stayed in the compound. Just work and religious studies. I knew, even at that age, that there would be no more school. And my whole life would be in that compound. In the cult. I would love to tell you that this was a heart-aching decision, but the sad reality was, I wanted to go. My brother wasn't lying, they weren't my parents anymore, they weren't themselves anymore. They were without personality, like the others, just empty shells, and we had to go. The next night my brother told me to sleep wearing some thick clothes. He woke me up in the dead of night, and we exacted our plan to escape the compound. He had intentionally left the door to one of the fields unlocked for the past few nights, and because it had gone unnoticed, he thought it would be the best way to make a break for it. In the cold hours before daybreak, we crossed the fields, and then slipped through a weak point in the barbed wire into the forest behind the compound. After a while, we saw the lights of a city up ahead in the distance. My brother was carrying me on his back. He was panting heavily. When he couldn't carry me any further he grabbed me by the wrist and pulled me along slowing down wasn't an option we found a bus stop and we waited there for the longest time in the cold until a bus came along we got on and got off at a train station i hadn't heard of all the while i kept looking over my shoulder and i was feeling incredibly guilty i remember that my brother asked the staff at the station something We changed trains more times than I can remember. Each time my brother would use a payphone at the station. And then somehow, we ended up somewhere familiar. I felt like I had been to this station. When we exited the station, there were some adults. And they approached us. You're a and t***, right? I hid behind my brother. And he turned to me and whispered, It's okay. He smiled. I forgot what his smile looked like. It turns out the people who greeted us at the station were there to help. My brother's former teacher from school, his lawyer friend, and a policeman. My brother seemed to know or was told that even though we would escape our parents and the cult, they would be able to get us back to the cult because they had custody over us. Eventually, we were moved into a facility for children And we grew up, living life completely devoid of our parents. We went back to school, graduated, and we got scholarships. We got to go to college. My brother helped me the whole way. We studied at night, just like we did in the compound. It felt great to get good grades at school, after feeling as if we missed out on so much. I can tell you that the most terrifying thing about those days in the cult was the feeling of being trapped in a spider's web. Like, the more we struggled, the more futile it felt. But that's all in the past now. There's nothing but the horizon ahead of me. I don't have any time to waste on fear anymore. Thanks for listening to my story. Oh, and by the way, the name of the cult was
0: Before we continue these scary Japanese horror stories, we need to take a moment to thank HelloFresh for sponsoring this video. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Fall is a busy time, but HelloFresh recipes save time you'd otherwise spend meal planning, shopping, and chopping, so you can get back to what matters most. HelloFresh's family-friendly menu is a big win for the back-to-school season with easy, delicious recipes for drama-free dinners. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from each and every week, from vegetarian meals and calorie-smart choices to extra-special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy, with recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Get a better value. HelloFresh is over 30% cheaper than shopping at grocery stores with pre-portioned ingredients that ensure you won't spend money on excess food that ends up going in the trash. I've been using HelloFresh for about two years now, and honestly, it's made my meal planning so much easier and much less stressful. Join me and many others in the swamp at hellofresh.com slash swamped14 and use code swampt 14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Again, that's hellofresh.com slash swamped14 and use code SWAMPED14 for up to 14 free meals including free shipping. At the time I was serving in the military overseas in Yokosuka, Japan from 2012 to 2014. Since my time there I was settled and been there for 2 years and seeing a very lovely girl named May. May had told me she was pregnant and it was my child. I was currently on deployment, so I took responsibility for my actions, and we started to plan. During the second year of my service during the winter, six months since May gave me the news, my ship had been in dry dock for about a year, and each ship, depending on how large the ship's crew is, had a handful of duty sections. This was a group of members, who watched the ship and took care of it while the rest of the crew was off. So my section was on duty this night, when during our evening meal, one of my shipmates asked me if I could switch watches with him. Being that my current watch was standing in the freezing cold for five hours, he thought giving me his barracks watch would maybe lift my spirits up. It did. I took the proposal in a heartbeat. We both let our section leader know of the change. At 2345, I was on my way to the barracks to start my watch from 2400, to 0600. The barracks, watch was there for safety and to see that the right people were in their prospective rooms. I arrived with five minutes to spare. I bought myself and a person I was relieving a coffee thinking it would help them on the cold walk home. As the night progressed I made my rounds every half hour and when the wee hours of the morning came around I started to doze off. I was awoken by a resident who couldn't sleep due to the neighbors crying. If you can get the girl in the back of the room to keep quiet, I won't tell the supervisor that you are sleeping," he muttered, as if I didn't have a choice. The barracks was three floors high full of people, but at this hour, the silence had a certain eeriness to it, like you could hear your own heartbeat. My footsteps echoed, as if it was in some sort of catacomb. As I made my way upstairs, I began to hear sobbing. I shook my head in disappointment. This should be fun, I said to myself. I reached the third floor, and I made my way down the hallway. The sobbing sounded like it was coming from the laundry room. Maybe the poor girl didn't want to wake her roommates, I thought to myself. As I made my way into the laundry room, the sobbing was low, like she tried to hide it. I stepped forward and asked, Miss, are you okay? I turned the lights on, and I saw a young girl sitting on the floor facing the wall, leaning the washing machine. I asked again, Miss, are you alright? I put some strain on it, so she may hear me past the sobbing. I still waited for a response, but still got nothing. It was late, and I was tired and getting impatient. I got closer to her and said, Hey lady, are you alright? I think you should call tonight. I yelled as I walked closer. Just as I did this, the girl sprung up quickly. She looked sick. She had dark eyes, greasy hair, and she did not look happy. It was almost as if I ruined her crying game. Before I could open my mouth she let out an ear shattering scream, and it just kept climbing in pitch. I get closer to shut her up, but the noise was too much and I collapsed. The last thing I saw was the sickly girl in her menacing face staring straight at me, screaming. Suddenly, I woke up in the office where I was watching the cameras. I would have written it off as a bad dream from eating galley food, but I felt different. I felt cold and empty. I have never left the office for the rest of my watch. A week later, I got the news from May. She told me that there were complications with the baby and she had a miscarriage. I couldn't help feeling that that young girl in my night terror and the miscarriage could be linked. I'm back stateside now and the experience has left a major impression on me.
1: This happened when I was at university. There was a society dedicated to mountain hiking, and I signed myself up straight away. It had always been a passion of mine. My father used to take me hiking from a young age. We had a transceiver radio in our club room. We would check it regularly to see if people were doing okay on their hikes. One of the club members piped up and said, Hey guys, I'm pretty sure I'm getting a SOS transmission here. What do I do? We all headed to the radio and gathered around. It was there that we heard the undeniable sound of Morse code being transmitted. The sounds of dots and dashes over the crackly radio line. That's SOS without a doubt, one of the senior members of the club confirmed. He then set about repositioning the antenna to determine the location of the transmission. The signal was coming from the Joetsu border. We got permission to use the society-owned car and we headed off in the direction of the signal. We didn't have enough information on the situation to call in the police or even to know if they were necessary at this point. We decided that we would call them once we checked out the situation. Others opted to join us in their own personal vehicles. It took about three hours to find the location of the signal. It was coming from a forest area beneath Mount Tanigawa. We parked the car in the parking lot at the visitor's entrance. There were only a few cars parked there as it was a weeknight. We had a handheld radio with us to help us pinpoint the exact location of the signal. We checked it periodically to see if we were heading in the right direction. The radio started going crazy. It seemed like it was howling at one point. It usually isn't like this, so everyone was surprised. Following the leader of the group, we entered a mountain trail. It was night, and dense tree coverage made everything dark. But we quickly found a rucksack. We searched for a while longer and discovered a body. It was too late. We got out of the area and made contact with the police. We were all understandably shaken up by this. I mean, we were only university students. We didn't want to leave the forest though. We needed to explain things to the police. None of us noticed until much later, but the radio stopped emitting the SOS signal shortly after we found the body. And of course, no one doubted that the poor soul who perished on the forest trail was the one who raised the signal. But think about it though, how could a corpse possibly do that? We had this confirmed when the police said that the hiker did not have a radio on his person. What made things even more disturbing was the fact that the hiker had died two days ago. How did no one hiking find the body in that time on a hiking trail. The police explained all this in a follow-up meeting with our hiking society. They said that they eventually found a radio in the forest, but it was submerged in a nearby stream. The strange thing was that there was lots of us there and we didn't see anyone in the area, but that's not to say there could have been someone nearby. Can you imagine that? Someone in the shadows summoning us to the grisly sight of a murder under the false pretense of an SOS and watching us discover their work. We were there late, and we watched all the cars leave that parking lot, and not one was left there. That might suggest that someone brought the body there. This is unresolved at this point. Who the hell raised the signal? We talk about this. We talk about that strange night regularly, especially in the autumn months in most of our society meetings.
0: A few years back, I was taking part in a college exchange for six months where myself and a Japanese student swapped places to get a taste of life in each country. It was honestly one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Japan is weird by Western standards but it's also full of some of the most wonderful, gracious people I have ever met in my life. The way they think about life, even down to some minute details, is as fascinating as it is thoughtful, and going over there changed my life for the better. But something happened on a flight home from Japan, and although it didn't mar my experience entirely, it left a huge, black stain on what should have been a very fond memory. The flight home was a long one, A very long one, like nine and a half hours, followed by another ten hour flight. It's not easy just sitting there for that long. I'm sure many of you know that. It feels very claustrophobic, constrictive, and the fact that you really can't relax is just horrible. I suppose that's why people pop pills or something, or maybe plow those little mini bottles of liquor just to gain some semblance of relaxation. So. I'm in the middle of the second flight. This one is about eight or nine hours. That's going from Southern California to my hometown of Newark. I'd worked my way through most of the in-flight movies, and I'm sort of half watching this dumb sci-fi thing with Tom Cruise when I hear something over my headphones. I slide them off my head to hear the woman, a few rows ahead of me, getting all panicky in a foreign language. I'm no expert, but I'm almost certain it was Chinese, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, she's clearly very frightened or upset about something, and keeps hammering on the little button above her head that summons a flight attendant. A flight attendant comes by, trying to be as calm as possible, but obviously can't understand what the woman is saying because of the language barrier. It takes a moment or two for the woman to find some medium of communication, and then I watch as the flight attendant kind of leans into the middle of the seats for a moment before jolting back up and rushing down the aisle with a look of horror on her face. Moments later, she emerges, calling out something I'd only ever heard in bad movies up until that point. Is there a doctor on the plane? Are there any medical professionals on the flight? That's when I knew the situation was serious, that it wasn't just some poor Asian lady having a panic attack or something. The look on the attendant's face had told me everything, but this just made everything concrete. Something terrible had happened in the middle of those seats. Eventually, the flight attendant emerges from the business class section of the plane with a professional-looking man in a polo shirt, white hair, and glasses. This was obviously an English-speaking doctor she'd managed to find. He does the same thing the flight attendant did at first, leans in obviously and gives the man a brief examination before suddenly bursting into action. He looks around for the biggest, strong-looking man he can find, then doesn't so much asking for help but tells them to help. I know that might come across as him being rude, but the authority with which he spoke was powerful. No one questioned him, they just got up to help, like it was their duty. People are amazing when it comes to an emergency like that. The bigger guys started working on lifting someone out of their seat, pulling them to the middle of the row, and carrying them towards the back of the plane. I had a glimpse of the person as they passed, an elderly looking Asian man. He was as pale as a ghost, completely unresponsive by the looks of it. I looked back to see the doctor performing CPR on the guy after they laid him down, working on chest compressions, blowing into his mouth. That was distressing enough, but one of the big dudes started yelling, Come on, buddy. Come back to us. Open your eyes, man. You could hear the distress in the man's voice when it sank that the guy was dead, that he had no pulse, and that he was not coming back at all. Some of the passengers were crying, others were praying. It was one of the most intense situations I had ever been in, in my entire life. So it is at this point that I look back to see that the flight attendants had produced a body bag from somewhere on the plane. I didn't even know they had those things aboard. I mean, it was exactly the kind of thing you normally see on some Vietnam movie, this big plastic-looking bag with a zipper running up the middle. The doctor and the bigger guys help put the Asian man inside before zipping it up, while some of the flight attendants start reshuffling people for some reason. They move everyone behind me further up the plane, asking a few if they'd like impromptu business class and first class upgrades. But no one asks me. So in the end, it's me with a row of window seats to myself, with two free rows behind me. And then it's the back of the plane. I really should have seen it coming, and asked the attendants to move me too. But the whole thing was so intense, and everyone had so much to deal with, that I decided it was better just not to make a fuss. But like I said... When it dawned on me what was about to happen, I really wish I hadn't been so reasonable about the whole thing. Because suddenly, the guys are lifting the armrest on the second row behind me, leaning the seats back a little before hoisting the poor Asian man's body up and lying it on the seats. I can't even describe how incredibly uneasy the whole thing made me. There was no smell, I mean the body was fresh, but just the idea that maybe less than two or three meters behind me lay the body of a dead man. It was so impossible to really relax, and now it was even more impossible to not feel anxious. I tried to ignore it, but as you can imagine, that's just impossible. I found myself looking back between the seats every so often, just peering back at the shiny material and just knowing that poor guy inside is without a pulse. It was horrific. On the way off, a flight attendant took my name down and told me I'd be entitled to money off my next flight for being so nice and quiet about the whole thing, that it hardly ever happened. And that they were so, so sorry that it had to be me that the body was nearest to. It was the least they could have done. But honestly, I don't feel like I want to fly again. Not for a long, long time to come. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true horror stories from Japan. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button, as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it in the algorithm, and that's incredibly helpful to the show. If you're listening to this in iTunes or another podcast platform, please be sure to give this a 5-star rating, as it helps us a ton over there. If you're new to the channel, why not join us? Hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode, as I upload them nearly every single day, in all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at Swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp, and stories like yours that help keep this show going on a daily basis. Much thanks and appreciation to my friend Jay Nightmares who helped me with this video and sent in some narrations, as well as some stories that were translated. If you enjoyed his voice, be sure to check out his channel. You can find the link to do so in the description down below. He uploads a lot of great scary stories from Japan. If you're on the go and don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to listen to your favorite Swan Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and just about everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you would like to support The Swamp outside of hitting that like button, subscribing, and potentially giving us a 5-star rating on iTunes, maybe check out the merch store. I've got t-shirts, hoodies, and more. I'd love to see you guys wearing some cool Swamp threads. Be sure to join me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and let me know what story was your favorite in the comments down below, and I'll see you guys soon with another creepy video.